0: You share the couch, you share the remote, and if you've got a family plan with those other guys, you're probably sharing your data. But at T Mobile, you don't have to. Now your family can get four lines with up to 10 gigs of 4G LTE data per line. You heard right, four lines, 10 gigs per line. Do it! Stream, post, and download on the network that has doubled LTE coverage over the last year and added extended range LTE with a signal that goes twice as far and is four times better in buildings. Plus, right now, T-Mobile will even pay your family switching fees up to $650 or more per line when you trade in your smartphones. It's the best value for families. So get 10 gigs for all today, only from T-Mobile. T-Mobile. Switching cost paid with trading credit and Visa prepaid card. Device purchase and qualifying service required. Card issued by Metabank. Member FDIC card expires. Coverage not available in some areas. See
1: T-Mobile store for details. Blog Talk Radio. to pop health week on the blog talk radio and affiliate networks this episode is brought to you by health innovation media monitoring the innovation impulse from idea to business model and emerging best practices welcome everyone i'm greg masters the producer and co-host of the show and joining me in the virtual studio is my colleague fred goldstein at fs goldstein on twitter Principal co-host and co-founder here at POP Health Week. Hey, Fred. Hello, Greg. And I am glad you're here and, as usual, in the seat of competent stewardship as we engage leaders (laughs) in this conversation. So for those of you not familiar with Fred, he is a veteran healthcare executive and the president of Accountable Health, LLC, a co-sponsor of this broadcast. Fred's experience spans hospital and health system administration, general management of an HMO, the founder of Disease Management Company, and current tenure as the president of a population health management company. Fred also serves on the board of the Population Health Alliance, also known as PHA, which is a go-to industry gathering for thought leaders in the emerging space. As for yours truly, I am a seasoned healthcare executive as well, having provided leadership and consulting support for hospitals, health systems, capitated medical groups, IPAs, PHOs, MSOs, and several hospital physician managed care joint ventures. I publish and principally author in my downtime, acowatch.com, and spend most of my time captaining healthinnovationmedia.com, and I'm principally known. On Twitter as 2HealthGuru, with an aggregate following of 25,000. Today, we continue our series on population health and accountable care organizations, focusing on the physician-led perspective from none other than Farzad Mastashari, MD, the founder and CEO of ACO management company, Alidade, and also former national coordinator for health information technology. Do follow them on Twitter via Allidade, ACO and Farzad underscore MD. This is a great time to have this chat since Aladade is in the news with some exciting developments, which we'll hear about shortly. I encourage you to check out the most recent post on acowatch.com entitled, Another Milestone Marker in Favor of the ACO Model? Question mark. And with that intro, Fred, over to you. Let's get to know this enterprising physician thought leader and his thoughts on ACOs and pop health.
0: Thank you so much, Greg, for that great introduction. And Farzad, welcome to the show. Thanks. We're glad to have you here. So perhaps give us a little bit of history. What made you decide to launch Alidaid? You know, I I
2: had um, a wonderful uh, uh, experience in federal service. I, I really do believe that for People who want to make a uh, public impact—it's a—it's a rare privilege to be able to to really think about the country as a whole, from you know, we used to say Alabama to Alaska, and and try to make sure that uh, you know we raise all boats at that level. Um, but there were a couple of things that I was looking for for the kind of the next step in my career. One was, um, you know, we were we were really pushing out and and helping create this infrastructure for population health, but the business case for all that population health uh, functionality wasn't in place yet. And so it it often felt like, like, pushing rope you know through policy saying oh you should be able to you know make a list of your patients who are smokers or who have high blood pressure you should be have decision support you should have patient engagement tools you should have right in order to be able to do population health and and many uh, providers were saying well i don't need that to bill a 99213 you know <laughs> like what why this is why are you wasted my time and I, I really wanted to be working in an environment that was just then beginning to flourish, uh, where at least for some small segment of the American healthcare system, outcomes matter. It's not just waiting for people to get sick and then doing stuff to them. It, it actually is about um, uh, keeping a population healthy and for which you really do need those. Those tools become absolutely essential. That was part one. And then the other part was you know it's kind of um, different and and very exciting to be able to not just worry about raising the floor but about kind of seeing how far you can push the envelope, how far you can push the ceiling. Uh, and And that's I guess the other the other thing that's really been been gratifying about about this chapter. So
0: y- you've got this change now in the uh, marketplace. ACOs obviously are a, a, a new, I would say, kind of like a tool that that practices can use that will push them into and justify these population health principles. Can you talk about some of the services you you provide to these practices that allow them to begin to take those steps into population health?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's important to start with the uh, well. What do they? What do we need to be able to do, and then uh, go backwards from that to what what do practices need to succeed? And uh, it, after I left federal service, actually, I spent almost a year at at Brookings, uh, working with the ACO Learning Network there, and we created a, a toolkit that focused on four areas. Uh, and the toolkit's um, it's it's available for free online, and it has identifies kind of the big four we call it. Uh, and the first is you know identifying and managing high risk patients. You got to be able to do that. It's um, uh, managing. Uh, referral networks. It's um, event notifications, admission, discharge, transfer, and managing those transitions of care, and finally patient engagement. So those are the things that kind of the core competencies of population health. Um, And as you'll notice, those are not things that uh, primary care practices today have uh, have great tools for, have great strategies for, have, you know, know the practice transformation that needs to occur for those. And so we really try to assemble all the pieces that an independent primary care practice would need to be able to uh, succeed in in doing those things. So that includes scale. Right, if you're going to be doing referral management and and compacts with specialists or nursing homes, you need to have scale. Just being a one doc solo practitioner, you know, trying to talk to a, a health system that that's not going to get you very far. So one is scale. Two, is strategy, really understanding the regulations and figuring out and and figuring out your population, where are the savings opportunities, which one to to emphasize. Uh, you need cloud-based tools, and you need uh, to to have really the integration and um, uh, data interfaces with your electronic health record. You absolutely need an electronic health record, let me tell you that. That's one of our screening criteria. Um, and you need a whole bunch of analytics to be able to identify who are your high-risk patients, what's happening with your referrals, who are the um, the patients who are going to have a problem and and reach out to them and so forth and monitoring and evaluating what you're doing. Um, and you need you need kind of uh, someone to be by your side and and kind of help you uh, make that that slow change at the at the practice level. So those are the services that Allidate offers. It's scale, it's strategy, it's IT, it's analytics, and it's uh, practice coaching. Farzad, you mentioned
0: individual practices. When I looked at your website and or the states you're now in, which is very impressive, as you've grown this up very quickly. These are these are small. Groups. So you're grouping maybe three practices or five practices, and some might be larger. Is there a reason you picked that area, considering you see these ACOs going from mega systems down to uh, providers and maybe why you chose that and not work with hospitals or health systems in that space?
2: Yeah, I guess two, twofold. One, that's where I saw the need um, uh, more. The You know, those big health systems, they, they have a lot of the resources already. Um, but it was also, um, you know, I wanted to work with people who had a lot to gain and not a lot to lose. And when you're talking about health systems, uh, they have a lot of, at times, conflicting um, imperatives, business imperatives. Uh, and that just makes things pretty complicated to To add in this this ACO layer on top of whatever they have going on with, their educational mission, with their research mission, with um, the, you know, the, the need to, you know, you have a, a proton beam and, and that machine, you know, there's some capital costs you incurred for that. So you got to keep that machine humming and your operating suite and the, you know, the cardiothoracic surgeon that you just gave a big um, contract to. So it, it just, uh, the, the uh, one, some, some folks call demand destruction on the part of health system ACOs is just causes all sorts of um, confusion. I think on the part of the ACO and, and the organization. Like, what are our goals? Are we what are we trying to do here? And whereas with the small independent practices, um, you can really focus on kind of very clear outcomes. We want to reduce total healthcare costs. That's it, period. We want to improve quality. That's it. you know, we want to improve the patient experience. And you don't have to worry about you know what it does to your three other or four other lines of business. The other thing that I really um, really enjoy about uh, the smaller practices is they can change on a dime relative to larger practices. Um, the physician engagement that people talk about, they often talk about it as if, like you know, the health system decides to do something, then we have to somehow push down engagement on all the all the docs, right? And and that's really hard, right? When the decisions was made elsewhere, and now you want to get the buy-in of of the docs, and maybe their reimbursement doesn't align with whatever your many incentive systems are. Um, whereas for an independent practice, once the one or two or three practice partners make a decision that's it they've decided and they're engaged and the returns go to them you know so uh, getting the right alignment of incentives and motivation is is a lot easier in smaller practices
0: have you found as you go out and take this model out to smaller practices are there some that perhaps you don't feel can work this model yet
2: have you seen that at all Yeah, we actually, you know, we've um, mashed up six or seven different uh, data data sets um, and created a profile of every primary care doctor in America. And we only go after um, probably 20 percent, even to begin with, Um, or 80 percent. We say, you know what? Maybe they're not quite ready for this model. and and then among the, the remaining twenty percent, we do a lot of kind of vetting at the at the local level, uh, with local partners to see you know is the practice ready for this or not. And then finally, we actually you know there's some ACOs that that pay practices to be in them. Uh, we ask for a, a a commitment fee, a membership from the practices, not 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 because it it covers the cost of, of what we provide. It doesn't. Uh, but because it is to me the best single best way I found to see if someone is really practice is really serious and ready uh, for for engaging in 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 this new new style of care, um, it is that is so important, and I feel really blessed with the the practices and the partnerships that we've established with over a hundred now practices across across the states.
0: And you talked about this commitment fee, but you're, the rest of your fee structure is really based on a shared savings model yeah. where they become successful,
2: then you all succeed. And um, it, that's how it's set up, correct? That's right. Uh, our, our whole business model depends, and, and there were some journalists who were incredulous when I explained this. They were like, wait a minute, your whole business model only works if if you actually get savings and improve quality. And I'm like, yep. they're like, wow, you know, you know, you're pretty, you're pretty, uh, you know, daring, Uh, rather, rather aggressive. (laughs) Yeah. And, and I think, look, if, if, if I'm asking the, the, the practices to, um, to put their faith in this, then, then we should do the same and we should be aligned with them. You know, we see this a lot with software vendors where, you know, they're, They got to make the sale. And then after they make the sale, they have to provide, you know, just enough so that you keep paying your 18 percent, you know, maintenance fee. Uh, But they're not, uh, you know, they're not aligned on the outcomes you're trying to get the same way. Um, and, And I wanted us to be really aligned with our practices. And we're in, you know, we're in the same boat. We're in the boat right there with them, pulling on the oar with them. Yeah, and, and let me ask you this: Is it, I assume all of your practices today are one-side risk models? They are. We are we are very interested in um, the next-gen ACO model, and I think mm-hmm. uh, we'll, we'll we're going to apply for that uh, in the March twenty sixteen time timeframe. Um, uh, but uh, I think there are a lot of there are a lot of practices who. Uh, are still you know have some scars from from capitation days where they took on capitated risk contracts that they really you know they the 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 health plans um knew better than they did uh and they did not have the data the analytics the actuarial savvy to really accurately price those capitated contracts and and they suffered uh, as a result so i think there's some hesitance on on doing that until I think they gained some more confidence in terms of their ability to, to manage total cost. And are you,
0: these are, these are fairly small groups other than I noticed though, one state, it was about 21,000, I believe it was. Are, are you concerned that potentially as you move to that two-sided risk model,
2: you don't have a large enough population to, uh, to. Yeah, I, think, I think you have to have about uh, 10,000 from an actuarial perspective to, and, and, you know, more might be better, but um, we're, yeah, we're we're in Delaware. We're now um, about twenty percent plus of the Medicare market share of the state. Uh, twenty twenty thousand um, uh-huh. attributed Medicare lives, and so I, I think it does help uh, to um, to have some more scale before you do those two sided models. But it doesn't have to be a single institution, right? You can. The idea here is that a, a an empowered network of independent practices could have the same or maybe even greater ability to take on uh, full risk so are you then looking at at
0: linking up these these acos across those lines to potentially
2: share something that way um you know i i think what's more likely to happen is uh, certainly for some you know some contracts that with nationals there there may be the ability to unite them across state lines but i think more likely what's going to happen is um, organic growth in the markets we're in, where as more and more practices start to think about moving into ACOs, um, you know, the the SGR fix macro is is going to cause a huge increase in uh, providers seeking these alternative payment models for 2018, 2017. Um, so I think as the as as uh, primary care practices start to move in this direction, the I think that we'll see a lot of organic growth in those markets where if we have a, a, um, a stronghold of, of, you know, high performing practices doing well and, um, and then we'll kind of add on to that core and, and gain, um, gain size. Fantastic. Your, your
0: discussion too, on this, uh, this idea of, um, taking the risk and sharing that risk with the providers as your means of largest means of reimbursement. Is that, because you've seen what I would assume is a fair chunk of low hanging fruit there. And if so, what areas are you targeting early on when you go into these practices?
2: Um, The, you know, it's, there's no secrets right to where, (laughs) where the opportunities are. Um, The, the, you know, the first thing we actually work on with the practices though, isn't going after low hanging fruit on costs. Um, Jeff Bezos of, of Amazon, um, famously said that our longer time horizon gives us a competitive advantage over others. And I, I love that idea because so much of the problems we have in healthcare is because of short-sightedness, coin-operated mentality. What's the, you know, where's the quickest buck I can make, right? And, it, you know, to succeed at this, I mean, one of the things we preach to our practices is, you know, no quick fixes. This is, let let's do the, let's do the right work and and it will pay off in the long run and and we're going to be in this thing for the long run so the first thing we work on is not finding the super high utilizer frequent flyer you know and and trying to do whack-a-mole with them the first thing we do is we say um wellness visits (laughs) right like there's you need to know your patients and if you're only seeing them when they're sick uh, you lose an opportunity to keep them well so Let's start with Population Health 101. Can you have a list of your patients who haven't been seen in a while, who have one or more chronic conditions, and bring them in for a structured, standard visit where you really ask them and and evaluate them for falls risk, for depression, for whether they're, uh, you know, what does it make a care plan for them for the years to come? So that's the first thing we work on with the practices is uh, outreach to To patients and and not being reactive, but being proactive. The second thing we work on, again, not low-hanging fruit, is immunizations, right? Prevention and the pneumonia vaccine, which is greatly underutilized. Is it going to give us, you know, savings in three months or six months? No, but is it over three years? Yeah, I think so. It's the right thing to do also, right? So we've seen a, you know, fourfold increase in uh, well visits. We've seen a fourfold increase in pneumonia vaccination. And then the third thing we work on with them is, okay, when a patient gets sick, where should they go? And how often are, are your patients going to the emergency room, which is a, frankly, let's admit it, it it's, it's a kind of a lousy experience, right, for my 80-year-old you know, relative to go sit in an emergency room on a hard gurney for nine hours um, for something that could have been seen in the office. So let's work with, with the practices on same day, same day visits. Um, and it's interesting, a lot of the practices we work with were already patient-centered medical home level threes. These are really advanced primary care practices in many cases, right? And whatever, you know, requirement 1B is same day visits. And they said, yep, we do it, check the box. And then we said, uh, you know, guys, we're looking at your data and 60% of your ER visits are occurring during uh, times when your office is open. And then they go talk to the front office, of frontline staff, and they're like, well, what happens when a patient calls? And they say, well, you know, after one o'clock, I tell them to go to the ER. <laughs> or, yeah, you know, we have, you know, three slots open. And when those fill up, they go to the ER, right? So it's really working with them, not on… Compliance with some requirement, um, but actually focus on the outcome. Are our patients having to go to the emergency room when they could be coming in to see you in the office? And when they come in, does the front desk person smile and say "welcome"? We're so glad you came in, or do they scowl and you know make them feel put out for having you know the doctor be kept longer? Uh, so those are the those are the things that that we worked on and and transitional care um, management. Um, what happens when someone leaves the hospital? Uh, how often do we successfully call them within 48 hours, see them within 7 to 14 days, make sure they don't get readmitted? Um, and our, uh, our practices increased the rate of uh, transitional care management um, visits threefold. Um, so those are the kind of the things, the, the basic blocking and tackling of population health that we're working on. Does that make sense? It sure does.
0: And it gets back to some of the discussions we had last month with some of our primary care innovators with Rashika, and Iora Health and Roy Hinman and Jay Lee and Paul Grundy talking about getting those simple things done for the patients. You know, I think Roy had a rule in his office. If a patient shows up before closing, we're seeing them no matter what. And if you don't, yeah. we got a problem and you're talking to me as the head of this practice, you know, um, and I think that's that's fantastic to meet those needs. Obviously, you've got physicians who believe in this model. You believe in this model, and you now have, uh, you know, investors that believe in this model. Talk a little bit about
2: the recent investment and what you hope to be able to accomplish with that. Yeah, it, it, we we just raised um, $30 million from our original investors. So the same groups that uh, Venrock and Arch Ventures that funded our seed and, and Series A, you know, our opening um, said, you know, we love what you're doing and and some of our you know assumptions have been have been uh, have been met uh let's let's go let's keep going and uh with the with the investment we certainly are able to now grow as as we've to meet the demand as we've seen this year um but also to take the next steps and one of the next steps that we um we're going to do this year is commercial contracts so that for our um uh, practices. They're saying, "Look, I love what we're doing here. Can I do it for my other patients?" <laughs> and we're like, "Yeah, but we have to have a a contract first with the with the health plan, so that we get, for example, the full claims history. Um, you can't do this without data. No shared risk without shared data. So uh, that's the next the next thing that that we're going to be working on, and really getting." Um, us to the place where, as I said, I think there's going to be a huge influx into Accountable Care in the 2017-2018 timeframe, and we want to be ready for that to be able to meet that demand, which means really making industrial strength, a lot of the onboarding process and practice transformation curriculum and so forth, the, the IT tools, the analytic tools and all that, getting all that curriculum, getting all that really bulletproof, and being ready to expand into local markets while preserving that that local leadership, the local talent, um, the clinical champions and so forth in each of those local markets. So that's what we're doing for the next couple of years is um, continuing to learn, continuing to iterate uh, and, and making sure that whatever we build uh, is scalable to a much larger um, group of, of providers that we think are gonna come. Do you see yourself moving
0: even further potentially into becoming an insurer or having an insurance vehicle?
2: I don't. No. I, I think that uh each group should do what they're what they're best at doing. I don't think insurance companies are, you know, have found it very um successful to try to become provider organizations by and large. Um and I and I honestly I think being an insurer is harder than I think some provider organizations think. Um, so I, I say let's let's do you know let's find partnerships where we can help uh, we can help each other. And, and that's I think the promise here is that instead of um, providers and insurers being on opposite sides of negotiating tables, you know, arguing over you know a penny discount, um, we should really be on the same side of the table trying to keep the patient healthy and, and each doing our part.
0: We're coming up on almost the end of the hour, half hour here. What would you tell providers out there who are still kind of trying to figure this out? You know, what would you tell them today to do?
2: I, I think you have to get ready. Um, th- this, there's a train leaving and you don't want to be the last person on the train or left or left behind this, you know, this is, is, is coming. Uh, this shift to value-based payment and more and more, you know, with with um, the the SGR fix, which, you know, lest people try to fool themselves that oh, maybe, you know, this is all going to change with a different administration. That that SGR fix bill was ninety two to eight, voted out of the Senate. I mean, ninety two to eight. This is this is not a Democrat or Republican or independent <laughs> issue. This is not a political issue. This is a need for us to get more value out of the the billions trillions we're spending on healthcare. so um uh, so this is coming and and you got to get ready and and everyone's got to get ready to whatever extent you know wherever they are find out where you are and, and 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 move 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 on down um and you know i think if you're if you think you're you're ready to take a big step then then you know um we'd be happy to talk to you at elidade that's great. Could you talk just a little
0: bit for the group about the SGR fix and what that means to doctors?
2: Yeah. So uh, the uh, you know there was this annual ritual with with the sustainable growth rate and staving off the uh, by the end twenty percent plus cuts in reimbursement totally un, unsustainable and you know terrible way to run a run a business and in in return what uh, the the uh, Congress and administration have said is okay. Um, you're going to get a half a percent annual increase, docs. A half a percent. Now, inflation's more than that, so let we <laughs> let we get carried away with joy. <laughs> like they're they're basically saying if you want to stay in fee for service, um, you know, over time, doc pay is going to be eroded by inflation, if nothing else. Half a percent a year total increases and beginning in 2018 there's going to be all sorts of new you know quality programs including total cost by the way uh, in terms of you know measures you have to meet and that could cause a 9% swing in your reimbursement from you know i think it's minus 4% up to plus 5% or you can go into an alternative payment model like an ACO and you will get a 5% bump guaranteed not including the potential to um, make savings or or um, get risk rewards in in terms of these new payment models so it's very clear that um, we're going into this new world fantastic
0: thank you so much Farza. that was very insightful and love to get you back on the show in the future that i'll turn it back to you greg
1: and that'll have to be the last word on today's broadcast. I want to thank our guest, uh, Dr. Farzad Mastashari, for his time and insight today. Do follow him at Farzad underscore MD on Twitter, as well as Alidaid at Allidade ACO. We do this weekly on Pop Health Week. And join us next week for another edition where we dive into continuing coverage of ACOs and Pop Health with Gerald necklace of Accenture. Until then, for Greg, uh, Greg, that's me, for Greg Goldstein, this is Greg Masters saying "Bye bye now.
0: presents time machine hey what are you doing it's 17 months until i can upgrade to the new iphone 6s and i'm building a time machine so i don't have to wait oh with sprint i never have to wait i get to upgrade to the newest iphone right away whenever it comes out
1: seriously seriously man i gotta switch to sprint uh why does your time machine sound like a microwave oh it's cooking my leftovers from tomorrow night
0: the world's best offer on iPhone 6S. Get iPhone 6S as low as $1 a month when you trade in your iPhone 6. And with iPhone Forever, get a new iPhone every year, forever.
1: Offer not available everywhere. Includes 21-month lease. No security deposit. Excludes taxes. Subject to well-qualified credit. New line port of $36 activation fee. Requires smartphone trade-in. Regular $22 a month. iPhone Forever's lease upgrade eligibility does not guarantee monthly payment amount, phone selection, or plan rates. Services additional. Charge remaining. Lease payments due if service canceled. Restrictions apply. See Sprint.com.